Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 151st show. Today's guest is Julie Winkle. Uh, is it Gulini? Giulioni. Giulioni. Uh, author of Promotions Are So Yesterday, which is, I, I love that title, which is what attracted me to reading this book. So, uh, Julie, why don't you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, so, um, you know, development and learning have been kind of a, a through line, I think, through my story. My very first job was teaching modeling and charm to children. And that was really a thing back in the day. Parents would ship their kids off to learn uh, yeah, how to behave. And, uh, and I find that some of the lessons I learned right there from that first job have informed my approach to learning and development and training throughout the years. Um, so I was a high school teacher, uh, university department chair, and then I went back into industry. My last role before I went out on my own, I was the director of product development for one of the largest training companies in the world. And that set me up really beautifully to kind of hang my own shingle and start doing a lot of consulting and instructional design work for corporate clients. And uh, 11 years ago, I had the good fortune of writing my first book, Help Them Grow or Watch Them Go, which was a great opportunity to really dive deeply into this subject of career development and how to make it more effective. And, uh, and that consulting and work around the world over the last decade spawned the the latest book promotions or so yesterday i think people everybody struggles no matter what age you are about where your career is at it's not like our parents where you just stayed 30 years in one job and you sucked it up you didn't complain you were glad you just had a paycheck and that's it now uh our generation especially our kids generation it's a totally different and we have kids roughly the same age. Well, why did you write this book? In large part, because my experience working with organizations around the globe was that in many organizations, career development is broken. You know, it's stuck in, in the ice ages in a very different time, as you described, where um, folks joined on and stayed on for, you know, a career. And that's not how it operates any longer. And so what I was seeing uh, was a disconnect between the new entrance of the workforce, but also the workforce in general and how career development was operating. I also was working a lot with managers, helping them improve their skills and abilities when it came to having really good career conversations. And despite having additional skills under their belts, they were still reluctant, nervous, anxious about having these career conversations because all they knew to point people to was promotions. 
and they assumed all people cared about were promotions, and they're in pitifully short supply in most organizations. And so managers were really struggling, and, and we needed to introduce a new framework, a new way of thinking about careers and career development that's more aligned with, you know, 2023. Well, this couldn't be more timely considering uh, we're going through an every 10-year um down market where companies are laying people off after telling them that they're family. And obviously they don't like their family that much because they're <laughs> telling them, uh, yeah, you were family, but not anymore. <laughs> so you write that career development in terms of promotions, uh, moves or title changes are dead, uh, which you were just talking about. Why do you say that? Because going up the ladder seems to be more important now than ever since companies are picking uh who they're going to interview, especially using technology, uh, and they need to feel that they are mentally making headway. People feel like, gosh, if I'm not getting promoted, I'm standing still, and if I'm standing still, I'm drowning. So talk a little bit about that. All right. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, So let's go back to the current market, because I'd like to push back or maybe offer a slightly different point of view. I totally agree. There are some sectors where we're seeing those layoffs. I mean, the, you, you look at tech, um, they they skilled up, they ramped up, they performed brilliantly during the uh, the pandemic to, to keep us all connected and going. And so we're seeing, you know, the contraction there. But there are other industries where there aren't enough employees to fill the open job racks. I was talking to somebody last night, dentists dental hygienists. They're just, you you can't find enough of those. Uh, A lot of the frontline is service workers, same sort of situation. So it kind of depends upon where we look to, to, which is what makes this market so confusing. You know, are we in a recession? Aren't we? Are we doing layoffs? Aren't we? It's, you know, sort of where you're looking at any given time that helps you understand that. Um, So that's a piece of it. But here's, there. you use the word headway. And I really love that, Mark, because I think that is the crux of what we're talking about here. In the past, the only way we calibrated, you know, or evaluated or measured that headway was through the promotion, the position. The title, am I moving up the food chain? Is the money getting better? Is the title getting bigger? Are my you know, windows um, more toward the center or toward the corner of the building? And that was the only um, box we knew to check. And what I would say is that today, people are defining headway differently. You know, when you think about what we've all been through over the last several years, looking mortality in the face, having to really figure out what's most important at any given time. You know, people are looking for a different kind of relationship with their work and they're measure, they're wanting to measure their success in different terms. So the time is actually really right for us as a, a business community to step back and look at how we want to define career development, how we want to define career success, and how we can help people achieve that. You're right. It's important to broaden your definition of career, career development, career success to include seven dimensions. What are they and why those seven did you choose? 
Yeah, yeah. And maybe I can answer in the reverse order, starting kind of with the why. So as I mentioned, over the last 10 years, I have been working with organizations, um, leaders and employees alike around the world. And I've talked to thousands of employees about what career means to them. And when they start talking about that, they talk in very expansive terms. They talk about wanting to make a difference. To, to leave a legacy, to make friends, to actualize their talents, to challenge themselves, you know, kind of test their mettle and see what they're made of and to enjoy joy and ease and meaning. I mean, the, the list goes on. And so as I was listening to those sorts of descriptors, they started to fall into some natural, you know, kind of an organizing schema, which I ultimately uh, called the multidimensional career framework. And what it does, it expands the definition of career development beyond just that climb up the corporate ladder to include seven other dimensions, all of which just, you know, coincidentally begin with the letter C. So the other dimensions are um, contribution, competence, connection, challenge. We have um, uh, contentment. Um, let's see. You're testing me on it. Uh, contentment, choice. And, and then there's the climb up the corporate ladder as the eighth C of the, the uh, framework. But what's interesting is what distinguishes these other Cs from that climb is that the climb is finite. These other Cs, infinite. You know, the climb is very fixed and out of the control of most employees and, and even most managers. Contribution, challenge, contentment, choice, those are all within a manager and an employee's sphere of influence. And so climb can feel, I don't know, disempowering. The other dimensions, the ultimate in empowerment, because you as a, an employee can work with your manager to make growth happen, whether there's a promotion uh, available or not. I have to tell you, I think more managers need to be trained on how to help their employees maximize their potential. And so many of them are bad managers. They might have been great salespeople or, or great technically, but it turns out they're not really good managers. Just like very rarely do great athletes uh, turn out to be great players. Uh, just, you know, it happens, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. For the most part, they don't have the patience. They don't know how to communicate with them, you know, a whole variety of different things. And they kind of wash out in that. But it really hurts the person's progress and mobility and happiness at the end of the day. It's a really good point. It's an entirely different skill set when we're asking someone to manage, to lead, to coach, to encourage, to support, to inspire others. That's not the same skill set as a technical, uh, an exceptional technical performer. And so it is, it's so unfortunate. We so frequently set these people up for something less than success um, by, by moving them into those ranks without, Mark, as you said, the right preparation. They don't do well. They're more inclined to leave the organization and go be an individual contributor somewhere else than feel like a failure in their own organization. And you mentioned it really hurts them. It hurts their confidence. It hurts their career success. But think of all of the people who report to those people it's hurting them as well to not have the kind of leader who's 
prepared to support their success as well. I once had uh, lunch with Steve Jobs in 1990 uh, with a group of five people, but I was sitting next to him and he's incredibly hard on people. And so we were walking out and his people were not walking near him. They were like five steps in front, five steps behind. And I asked them when he got in the car, how come none of you were like near him? They go, because we don't know who he'll lash out at. And when you think about the fact that if he had not had Steve Wozniak and hadn't had Tim Cook, none of us would have heard of Steve Jobs mm. because he didn't have the skill set to be really a good manager of people, great visionary, great at where products fit, but was not that. And you need that skill set to make somebody like Steve Jobs a possibility. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen. Same with Michael Jordan, right? I mean, if you watch the video of him, God, he was horrible uh, person to be around, but he had a great a coach that knew how to raise everybody else up uh, so they wouldn't, so the uh, team wouldn't, you know, collapse under his personality. Uh, for a good chunk of the last decade, smart, talented young people have had many employment op options, which gave them leverage. Uh, now we're seeing mass layoffs, especially in the tech industry. Do you think, think people are more concerned with getting a job or finding a supportive organization concerned about their career? Is C, all of the above, an option? Yeah, you can have it, whatever option you want. It's your book. <laughs> uh, so I think, yeah, I think it depends upon who we're talking to. Uh, again, getting back to the sector and, and what's going on from an employment, employment standpoint there. Um, but here's the thing. I mean, we know there's so much research. Uh, Gallup found 76% of the people they polled are looking to expand their career development. 94% say they'd stay longer if they felt like their organization was invested in them. We know that a lot of the folks who've left over the last year or two have been leaving for greater opportunities. And the talent that you want, you know, top talent is going to be a scarcity in, in every market. And so development really is that differentiator um, that distinguishes one organization from another. So, um, so I, I think that the organizations that are going to really succeed um, whether it's feast or famine, whether the employer has the upper hand or no hand at all in the process, the organizations that are going to succeed sustainably are the ones who have a, a culture de of development um, where that's just part of the DNA. And that becomes a really, um, really attractive intangible when it comes to the, um, you know, the attraction and selection process. I think, yeah, you know, this, I, I think you said it right, that for the smartest and most talented people, it doesn't matter what the market's doing, they can pick up and go and people are going to want them no matter what. The average people uh, are ones who are going to stay because out of fear that they can't find something else or they're just too lazy to go and look for somewhere else. But again, uh, having great managers can take the average person and have them play at a higher level. And knowing that you've really got to cater to the supreme talents, your best bet is to really work on the folks that are average and get them to the next level so that they uh, perform at a better level and help the organization don't have as much turnover. I mean, I think that's always the biggest fear, right, is 
uh, constant state of turnover and how much you've invested in them. Right, right. And I, I have heard managers say, well, I mean, does it really make sense to give them training? Because, you know, if they get better, they're going to be more attractive and they'll leave. It's like, does it make sense not to give them training? You know, the only thing that's more dangerous than than withholding those conversations um, or than having those conversations about development is withholding them. Because, you know, we know what people what people want. They want the, the development. And wouldn't it be a happy problem, Mark, you know, to be the kind of manager who elevates those average performers to that top level that you have to worry about leaving the organization? I mean, that's the kind of problem that I want to have to contend with. And that's what you want from your managers is to go and do that. I mean, look, nobody gets married and says, you know what, I think I should treat him or her uh, not so well, because if I treat him too well, then they're going to want to go off somewhere else. That doesn't, it's, it's illogical at the end of the day, because people mostly want to stay where they're at because they find a home. And if they're treated well and respected and heard, then they don't want to move. Uh, and as an employer, you want, don't want those people to move. I'm always amazed at when you see like Salesforce or somebody letting people go, why not just make everybody take a pay cut across the board and only really let go of the people who really aren't pulling their weight? Mm-hmm. That's what I did in the organizations I ran. When there was a down market, I just told everybody, I can give everybody a 10% cut, including me, or I can let three of you go or five of you go. You choose. Well, nobody wants to be um, playing Russian roulette. So they're glad to share. Yeah, and there were some, um, some brilliant stories of organizations, you know, during the pandemic that did that, and um, and that can create an unbeatable culture. I mean, you talk about everybody rowing in the same direction; it doesn't get more profound or visceral than that. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, also putting people in the right position to succeed. I once worked with a doctor's practice where they put the bookkeeper as the office manager, and she was a great bookkeeper. Yeah. Uh, but not a great office manager. And so they told me I've met with the partners and they were going to fire her. So I said, so she's been with you 25 years and you put her in the wrong position. Now it's her fault that she's not a good office manager. And they just stared at me and I said, maybe you should just put her back as bookkeeper and find a new office manager and put send the woman on a two week vacation because you probably shortened her life. By the fact you put her in a position she never was going to be good at. Yeah, so they yeah. did. They did. They did follow this. And they told me that the all the nurses started crying because they thought it was such a nice gesture on the doctor's part. Bought them a lot of goodwill. Wow. Wow. And it's just it's a smart gesture. Uh, the question that I ask when I find those kinds of situations as well is what have you done to set that person up for success here? Hey. Exactly. What kind of coaching, what kind of mentoring, what kind of skills training? You know, it's really unfair to call it a failure, decide to pull the plug if you as an organization (laughs) or leader haven't made the the commitment. Absolutely. Do you think this pushback by people of all ages of going back to the office and working from anywhere they want will negatively affect organizations from establishing a winning corporate culture and developing people? Oh, let's let's bifurcate it. Let's let's talk about the culture piece first and then the development piece, because the nature of the workplace, distributed, remote, hybrid, whatever it might be, um, has a a profound influence probably on on both of those. So let's talk culture first. And I'm going to say, no, I don't think 
having it distributed or remote or hybrid or, you know, person, whatever the configuration might be, workforce has to hurt culture. You know, you look at industry, you look at some of the most highly functioning sales teams around the world, they're distributed. They're not all co-located in the same place. And they can have incredibly strong, um, positive, productive cultures. I think about my own, um, one of the last jobs I had before going out on my own, the company that I had joined was called Zenger Miller, and it was a training company. And I look back on that we were distributed. It was back in the 90s before it was in vogue, but we had folks all over the country. It probably had the strongest culture of any organization that I have ever been a part of because there was a clear vision. There were shared lived values. There was transparent communication and and trust and a real commitment to uh, making our customers successful. So I don't think being together physically is a requirement for that. Does it take more intention? Do we have to be more deliberate? Absolutely. Um, But I think it's really doable. Now, the development question, what impact does that all have on development? I think that's a little bit more um, nuanced because You know, when people are not together, there's a lot of informal learning that happens. You know, you think about some of the most profound lessons we've learned. They probably weren't in a classroom or in a webinar. They were in life watching things transpire. They were in meetings, seeing how people responded and interacted with each other. They were, you know, in front of clients and working through problems real time and having to be resilient and agile and whatever it might be. So that informal learning, when we, you know, send people, scatter them around the world, that informal learning is taking a hit. And that is where we could have some uh, challenges. Um, That said, it's not, doesn't have to be like that. You know, organizations who want to be intentional about the informal learning, make kind of the invisible visible, Um, make sure that they're bringing, you know, people together, for instance, for that one day a week and really mining the interactions, the the role modeling, the mentoring opportunities. That's a a way to bridge the, the distance and help to ensure that some of those lessons that just kind of flu bias, we didn't even notice we were getting them, get captured by people so that we can continue to raise the bar. There's a, um, a CEO I met um, at Christmas time, we're at a father-daughter dance, and he was saying that they have a global insurance company and they're telling people that they're recruiting, you have two choices, you can apply for a job or you can be applying for a career. And they, and they go, what do you mean? Well, if you just want a job, you can work from home or anywhere you want to, and you'll just get your bonus and yearly raise. But if you want a career, move up the corporate ladder, you got to come into the office so we get to know you. And so you can observe things and we develop a relationship with you. So you decide what you'd like. If it's just a job, we're good with that. If it's a career, then you need to come in. I think that's a great way of putting it. Choose your own adventure. I love it. Yeah. And, And putting, you know, putting the onus on the individual to really think about what am I looking for here? What do I want? Yeah, because some people are not looking for a career. They're looking for a job and lifestyle. 
and they don't necessarily want to move up in the corporate ladder. According to Gallup poll this past fall, only 33% of workers feel engaged, 50% stressed, and 41% worried. So how do you find the right path of satisfaction, balance, and stability, or is that just a pipe dream? (laughs) So at the end of the day, I think it all boils down to relationship and communication doesn't it? And those are, are things, you know, kind of some um, some casualties of our more remote uh, working configurations. Um, yeah, em- employee engagement, I think, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it might be at an all-time low um, with people. And, and not surprisingly, I mean, I remember when engagement was a topic that we talked about in leadership and business circles, and now it's on TikTok you know, bare minimum Monday and quiet quitting. And I mean, just all of the the, the forms are just um, so a part of the zeitgeist. Um, and so, so at the end of the day, you know, you look at the level of, of burnout, the mental health challenges that people are bringing to, to the workplace. Um, it creates an environment where it's hard to be 100% engaged. And that's where leaders come into play. You know, when a leader has a relationship and that relationship primarily plays out through conversation. When we have those open, trusting, respectful um, lines of communication open, we can, as leaders, understand. We can get ahead of some of this stuff. We can figure out where the real pain points are and, you know, determine what, you know, balance or satisfaction or whatever it might be that an employee is looking for really means to them and where we can flex and find ways to say yes and meet some of those needs that will keep people, you know, bolstered and and whole and put them in a position where they can bring more of themselves to the work. Uh, And it's in our best interest, obviously, to, to do that. Here's what I'm finding is managers who engage in those kinds of conversations, even when you're not able to fix it, you're not able to bring a solution to the table, just having the conversation, just demonstrating the interest, just saying, you know, through the investment of your time in this conversation, I value you, you're important, that's huge and can have engagement-related outcomes. I'm not saying, you know, do it so that. We we do it because it's the right thing to do. But the happy news is there could be some positive, you know, byproducts. I, I think um, employees, like when you have your children or, or a significant other, it's not a question of things, it's a question of time. You put the time in, you have transparent conversations, no matter what happens, you're going to be in a much better place. All the foosball machines in the world don't make up for you spending time with the employee uh, and listening to them and help and helping them develop themselves to be uh, max potential, right? At the end of the day, what, what do you think of the whole thing with Twitter? I mean, what would you tell you've got, especially you have a, a son who had worked for one of the big tech companies. I didn't want to mention the name of the tech company. But, you know, what would you tell him when Elon Musk came in, what he should do about his career, knowing that this guy just 
he got rid of 80% of the employees. It's not like 80%. Yeah, this might get into a whole different conversation, Mark. <laughs> uh, and the but, stability of that organization. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, we saw, I I, I don't want to put any value judgments. You know, we all have different opinions of, of the situation there. Um, but, you know, what was really impressive to me was the number of people who had the strength of their conviction to say, no, I'm not staying. And, you know, that, that kind of, of deep um, confidence and values in action, um, that, speaks, that speaks volumes to me about an individual, you know, being true to yourself. And I have to say that if I were interviewing and someone came and told me the story that, you know, management changed, I couldn't get on board with it. And it would have been unethical for me to just shut up and keep coding. So I've made this choice. That would impress me. That would be somebody I would want on my team because I could trust them. They're going to give me the straight skinny. They're not just going to smile at my face and then go do whatever they want to do. And, you know, I find his, um, he, he clearly a creative guy and has taken some of these things to very high levels. But telling people, if you stay uh, and give me 16 hours a day, you have a job. And then a week later, lay those same people off after they made the commitment to him. What does what kind of message is he sending as a leader and a manager about what kind of organization he's running? Um, not a good one. And, you know, I think we saw the implications of that, right? When he went out to his customers, Twitter users, and asked for a vote of confidence, he didn't get that. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember, too, that how we treat our internal people, how we treat our employees radiates out to the customer um, there. You know, it's there's a very thin veil there uh, between the employee and the, the customer. And um, and so that um, disrespectful behavior on his part. Um, looks like it it had implications in terms of his reputation as well. I know as an employee, I would never trust him. There would be, I wouldn't work for him on any organization uh, at all. Wouldn't even consider it, no matter how much money he offered me, because I know I, he can't be trusted. Uh, in the book, you write about the importance of employees having control over their professional future, hence why many people go out and form their own business. How can companies who have specific needs and, and what to put people in uh, with specific skills still give the employee an opportunity to pick their own path and still help the company at the same time? You had a lot of good examples in the book. Thank you. Thank you. You know, um, what we're talking about right now is the dimension of choice, one of those seven alternatives to that climb up the corporate ladder. And you're absolutely right. You know, there are in organizations processes and systems and guardrails, and they're there for a good reason. You know, I'm not suggesting that we just throw caution to the wind and, and turn this into a, a free-for-all. At the same time, there are generally some dimensions of discretion that a manager and an employee can find that give that employee the opportunity to exercise more autonomy. Autonomy is one of the three um, psychological needs that we bring to the workplace. 
And that needing to have some control over, you know, uh, the work that we do, um, sort of that being the boss of me sort of sensation is really profound. So I'm not saying, you know, let employees set strategic direction. Obviously, that comes from the top. But when it comes to a particular role or job or task, where is there room to flex? You know, so if the task has to be done, you know, if that's a piece of, of getting the product or service out the door, could the employee make choices around when they do it, the sequence with which they do it? where they do it, you know, working from home, perhaps, rather than from the workplace? Could they make choices about um, their priorities uh, and where that fits within it, as long as it gets done? Could they make choices about the team they bring in to accomplish this or the technology that they deploy to do it? It really boils down to figuring out where are those choice points where how the employee does it won't affect getting it done, but giving them the volition to be able to affect how it gets done is, is huge in terms of a sense of ownership and elevating that level of engagement that we've been talking about. Uh, there are companies, as you write, and we've talked about who have uh, chief happiness officers. I wonder how many of them are going to survive the cuts and, and do a range of small things like ping pong tables, massages, and other things to make the work environment more friendly and relaxing. Do these actually get measurable results? And when things get tough, like now, do companies just toss, toss these out the door? Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, during the, the go-go days when the competition for talent in certain sectors was just excruciating, um, a lot of these sorts of, you know, creature comforts uh, started to come into play. I know uh, my son and daughter-in-law both worked for tech companies, and I think they had a food food bill of like next to nothing because they could eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then bring doggy bags home um, during the, that time. Um, and you're right. I mean, there were all those sorts of um, fun elements. Here's and and to be honest, with you, I think some organizations used it very successfully, and others it was you know sort of window treatment. Here's what I believe, though. Today, um, I think people are looking for something more than fun. When I talk to people about what they're looking for in their career, they're talking about meaning. You know, they're talking about making a difference. They're talking about uh, social implications. They're talking about relationships. It's it's so much more than that. And um, I'm kind of liking it, likening it um, in Los Angeles. I know a lot of the commercial real estate uh, professionals have been working with their um, their um, business owner, the the building owners, to create. You know, what's it going to take to earn the commute back? you know, with the beer gardens and the, the um, concerts and all sorts of, again, more creature comforts. And it continues to struggle. You know, it's not, it's not that people are necessarily looking for that stuff, but they're looking for the value of being together. And so, um, you know, when, when I think about um, those things being, you know, thrown off to the, the, the side of the road, 
you can do that when it's a ping pong table or you know all you can eat granola if though we figure out that this notion of happiness is not one size fits all and it's not just fun 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 and if leaders are taking the time to get to know people to really understand what's going to make them happy and bring them the joy the meaning uh, what they're looking for from their work that it doesn't you can't budget cut that those relationships are immune to contraction and, and budget cuts and those relationships are what carry people through the the tough times no question about it and i'm working with a real estate company too has a national presence and they're struggling and they're, you're telling these folks giving just somebody a lower um price per square foot is not going to do anything. You have to do more. And over the years, uh, the real estate industry has kind of learned that first they started just renting space, then it was having a cafeteria, then it was having convenience stores, and they just keep having to up their game to get people to come in the building. But now it's really a question of how do you, uh, like the insurance company, if you really want to have your career grow, we need to be able to see you and work with you on a daily basis to help you develop and for us to understand you and you to understand us. So you got to help these folks uh, do that. And maybe even networking the people in the building, right? So people still want to see people and interact with them. Yes. Uh, in the chapter on challenging people, it's important to stretch them so they improve their skill set and get more confidence. How do you do it in a way that doesn't overmatch them where they make a critical mistake or lose confidence, kind of like a talented boxer being thrown in too early with more experienced opponent and getting knocked out and never being the same again. I've seen that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think we've probably all seen that. So the dimension we're talking about here is challenge. And it's of all the dimensions, it's the one that most managers sort of have under their belt. You know, most of us as leaders, as managers, we know how to invoke a challenge for the purpose of development. Whether we do it as well as we might or not, that's um, kind of the question, I think, uh, Mark, that you're asking here. Because um, what's essential, you know, with the challenge, if we're going to use that to grow, we need to be able to move people outside of their comfort zone, you know, into the discomfort zone where learning and growth are accelerated. But as you mentioned, we don't want it to be so far that they just tank never to try again. And so a lot of that has to do, and I feel a little bit like a broken record today talking about this. It's about the relationship and the communication that we have with people. You know, you just don't throw a challenge at someone willy-nilly. You got to be strategic about it. And you don't do it until you've assessed, you know, what is the current skill level? So we can see how much further, may, are we taking somebody from a, a, a novice to having to have exceptional expert skills at something? That might be too big of a, 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 a gap to expect this challenge to deliver on. We got to look at their level of motivation. You know, motivation kind of ebbs and flows. If someone is really, you know, going and, and all in, then we can stretch a little further because they're going to be, you know, they have the, the emotional energy 
to put toward that. If it's sort of like, yeah, I just want to kind of tip through, tiptoe through the tulips here, then again, maybe we need to, to pull it back because we can't expect that investment on their part. We have to think about, you know, what else is going on in their lives? What kind of time are they going to be able to commit to this? And so when we do that kind of analysis and then match it to and calibrate it against the challenge, then we're able to, you know, sort of customize, tailor, create a just for that person, personalized experience of challenge as a tool to grow that's going to meet them where they are and take them as far as they can. Now, at the same time, I don't want to um, give the impression that we want to coddle people and make sure that, you know, they all succeed and everybody gets a participation trophy. I mean, failure is really instructive. And so letting people fall down, pick themselves up, have to figure it out, there's, you know, there's value in that as well. But going back to your uh, metaphor with uh, the boxer, if he's knocked down in the first couple of seconds and ends up with brain damage as a, a result, he can't ever come back. We need to make sure that these are just maybe little bruises and, and abrasions uh, that people can recover from and can have learned from and be better for it. Yeah, I mean, that's what you, that's the beauty of sports is that we watch how people can get overmatched in front of us and realize that they have to be groomed over time so they aren't overmatched. I mean, that's why in boxing, they always take people, progress them slowly um, because otherwise they know mentally they get broken easily. And so you're trying to build up their confidence. Hence, like that's in any business, you know, you don't want to give them something that there's no way that they can handle it and thinking they'll be better from it when most people will crumble and have self-doubt. Yeah, and, and so it's that intentionality, being really deliberate about growing them incrementally. And the confidence, you know, doesn't have to be completely decimated by the, the failure or the struggle or the, the problems. You know, when we calibrate it properly, those sorts of issues that we get to work through and figure out and come out on the other side of, that builds really deep abiding confidence in people as well. So I think this next question goes perfectly for this. Um, please talk about how to get employees to venture into voids that enhance their skills and what type of voids offer the best opportunities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, in, in the book, I talk about voids and I've really come to feel like voids are one of the most under the radar development tools that managers and leaders have at their disposal. So in all of our organizations, we've got these, I don't know, kind of like these gray areas, these blurry boundaries, these um parts of the organization where stuff isn't happening exactly the way that it should, where the handoffs and the collaboration between uh, departments around a certain process is just a little inelegant and clunky, or part of the customer journey that's not completely broken, because you'd fix that. I mean, you'd, if it's broken, you got to fix it but where it's just not working as well as it should. And it takes maybe more effort uh, or more, you know, or fixes, whatever it might be. Um, those voids 
are such rich opportunities for development because you know the bar is low. There are things that nobody's dealing with already. So anyone who steps in and tries it is, is immediately going to distinguish him or herself. Um, but they offer such rich training and, and development opportunities in things like collaboration, uh, data analysis and problem solving, decision-making, influencing, negotiating. They offer a bigger um, picture perspective of the organization and the work that folks are doing. So helping employees find those voids, those pinch points, those little problems is offers a great opportunity for really strategic learning. If, and the kinds of voids that, that really deliver on this are voids that are aligned with an employee's development goals. So, you know, we got to figure out what their goals are. Are there specific skills they want to learn? Will that void, that opportunity, fixing that problem, help them learn it, practice it, refine that? Um, do they want to gain greater visibility? Then maybe it's a void that's cross-functional in nature so that they're able to network and connect more broadly. Um, but the, the, nature, the nature of the void almost doesn't matter if it's properly calibrated. The key is that it is aligned with their growth goals. Because otherwise, if there's not that clear, unambiguous connection to their goals, it's just more work. And employees don't have the bandwidth for just more work. We need to connect the dots and help them understand without a shadow of a doubt how doing that project is going to help them build a visibility, build XYZ skills, and achieve whatever it is they're looking for from a development standpoint. Um, what strategies do you recommend to help someone regain their confidence and how to use the four roles of championing confidence? I like that in the book. Thank you. You know, I, I, parents aren't supposed to have favorite children. Authors probably shouldn't have favorite chapters, but the <laughs> chapter on confidence really is mine, I have to say. And I think it's because it it kind of comes from the heart, you know, my own challenges in that regard. Um, and confidence is not something that many leaders and managers think of as a development tool. Um, you know, you think about competence and you think about challenge and connection, but confidence might not be. Um, and yet any of us, and that would be most of us who've experienced that kind of a dip, we know it's a, a career showstopper. And so when, uh, and just, you know, I'll just transparently, I'll tell you, um, both times I've published books, you know, major milestone, I should have been at the top of my confidence game. Both times, my confidence tanked probably its lowest level. And during those times, I didn't need to worry about learning more skills or making more connections or challenging myself. I had to figure out who can I show up and develop, deliver in a consistent fashion the way I ought to. And so for some of us, confidence really rises to, to the top. And I know for myself, um, you know, speaking just from my own experience, over the years, what I've noticed is there are sort of four roles that people play that can help me develop 
more and develop through confidence. Um, and so I talk about them in the book. I write about them in the book. Um, one is what I refer to as the confidence whisperer. The person that you can have those candid conversations with, who's going to help you think through what's going on, why, you know, what is it that's triggering you at a high point in your career to feel, you know, like an imposter and a fraud and, and that sort of thing. Um, so having someone with whom you uh, you share a safe space to be able to deepen your understanding, because for a lot of us, especially when you hit a certain level in the organization, it's not cool to not have confidence. You know, you got to fake it um, because you're getting paid the big bucks. They're expecting big stuff of you. And so to admit, ooh, I'm feeling a little wobbly, that can be scary. So finding somebody you can really trust to have those candid conversations with is key. Um, I also found that, again, in my experience, I needed somebody who was going to be an absolute unadulterated truth teller. The person who would not, you know, blow sunshine my way and tell me what I wanted to hear, but would tell me what I needed to hear. Because I knew I wasn't gauging my performance objectively. I couldn't tell. Was I sucking? Was I doing okay? I needed someone whose opinion I trusted, who I knew was going to say, mm, not so much. You know, let's uh, let's look at X, Y, Z. And knowing that you've got that in your hip pocket, for me, I mean, that's a, a game changer. We also have um, this role that I've used a lot, a practice partner. You know, sometimes what we need from a confidence standpoint is to go through a couple of cycles at something, to talk it out, to work it through, to, uh, walk through the mechanics and having somebody who'll play along with you. I mean, literally role play situations where you feel like you need to get yourself more grounded is key. And then finally, the cheerleader, that person you can count on who's going to say, you got this, Julie, you know, don't don't be so hard on yourself. You know what you're talking about. Go out, do it, sparkle, shine. Um, and so those four roles, and maybe they're shared by the same person. In my life, I've seen them uh, come through uh, different individuals. But when I can cultivate those roles in my life um, during those confidence dip times, I find that I'm much more able to interrupt and return confidence to the appropriate level. I, I was wondering, why did you lose confidence after every book? You know, I think... Um, it's a new role. My uh, So much of the work that I've done in my life has been uh, facilitating the insights of others, facilitating workshops, writing training programs that other people deliver. And so to finally stand up and say, this is my point of view, is a, a pretty stark shift in terms of my history. And it's a little bit different in terms of my personality, which does tend to be a more facilitative sort of, of style. So I've had to challenge myself to, you know, be able to, to tell a story and, um, and take up space in a way. So it was a different role too. you know, being an author is an entirely different role than doing some of the other things. And so I needed to figure out who I was in this new space. And I figured uh, it out enough, you know, to where I wrote the second book and put myself through that fresh hell as well. And congratulations on the success of the first book and hope you have similar success with this book. And we want to try to help with that as well. Mm -hmm. Every manager has had to help an employee regain their confidence from a mistake. 
uh, and we just talked about this, what kind of stories should a manager share that will be meaningful and authentic that the employee can relate to? Not just bullshit where they try to make up, just like we read many books like where people give these examples and you're like, that's not real. You just made that example up. I want to hear real stuff. Yeah, messy stories. For people to regain their confidence, um, they need to know that other people have screwed up royally. They need to know that the person they look at who looks like they've got it together and who does have it together at some point fell down and just made a royal mess of things. They need to know what that looked like and felt like. They need to know, you know, that they've got an authentic human being on the other side of the the table there, the other side of the phone or the computer. And that's how then as a leader, we can help coach people because once we are credible, you know, credible screw uppers, just like uh, they are, then people are going to be more inclined to hear any thoughts, advice, counsel through uh, a lens of this person gets me. And so you're right, Mark. I think so many of the books we read and the conversations that we have, they're sanitized. It's like, oh, I just got here from here to here. And, you know, it, it was, I don't know, I just blinked and there I am. That's never the case. There is yeah. so much mess in between. And so as a leader, um, remembering the mess, you know, even documenting the mess for yourself so you don't forget, because it's easy, you know, to, to let that slide uh, out of our memories uh, and being willing to be really authentic and vulnerable and share is key. Here, here's an important one for me, and I'm still still searching this. Uh, first, how do you define contentment from a professional standpoint? I've never been able to quite get there. Uh, yet a type A personalities, which companies try to attract and retain, rarely are more bordering on never find this and oftentimes burn out because of this. How do you advise type A's to deal with it on their own? And what do you recommend companies do because they have a big cash investment in these people. Yeah, so um, so we're talking about the dimension of contentment here. And um, we did some global research, uh, just as a, an aside, global research. And we continue to do that uh, around employees' interest in these dimensions. And uh, when beginning of the pandemic, uh, we did the research for the book, we found that all of the other seven dimensions were more interesting to people than the climb up the corporate ladder, which was pretty stunning. We continue to validate that that is the case. What's interesting, though, is that since the beginning of the pandemic until the end of last year, this dimension of contentment went from number six out of eight, ranked number six out of eight, up to number three out of eight. So contentment is really front of mind for folks. It's also the dimension that gets the most raised eyebrows when I uh, start talking about it, because I think a lot of people are um, conflating contentment with maybe complacency, and that's not the intention here. Um, what contentment is really about is figuring out what do I need you know, to get more of what I want out of this job? And so it's, again, you know, I used that one size doesn't fit all before. This is absolutely the same sort of case. So what I need from a contentment standpoint might be ease and balance. 
what someone else might need, like you, Mark, your type A personality there. Really? You think I'm a type A? <laughs> maybe, maybe just a little. <laughs> maybe an A+. Plus. <laughs> um, what you, though, what contentment might be for you is a sense of achievement, a sense of progress, that making a difference, looking back on a legacy. And so a type A who's thinking contentment is sitting back with their feet up eating bonbons. I mean, that's that's never going to be their definition. But a type A can be really, you know, going 125%, um, doing, being full out, but also being content because, you know, I'm I'm achieving my goals. I'm blowing past what I thought I could do. I'm making a difference in the world. And so I think from, you know, when we're dealing with type A's, the, the challenge or the opportunity is to open up a dialogue and say, what do you need more of at work? What's going to allow you to bring the energy that you want to the workplace? And is it progress? Is it achievement? Is it, you know, whatever it might be, then you can start figuring out how can we invite more of that into the envelope of this person's role? Yeah, I I thought I won Inc. Entrepreneur of the Year when I was like 33, 34. And I thought, okay, I'm, I finally have arrived. I'm going to feel good. That lasted all of like a couple hours. And it was horrible. And I went to my boss who had built this big biotech company from essentially from scratch. And I told him, I said, I'm, I'm so deflated. I thought this would be it. I'd arrived. And he goes, you'll never feel like you've arrived because then once you've hit the goal, then you want the next one. So I find. And, and Mark, you know, I think you have really raised such an important um, issue. I think that is why increasingly people in the workplace are looking to prioritize the journey over the destination. I think we're starting to learn that the satisfaction associated with achieving that with being called this new role, with having that new office, the half-life of the satisfaction of that is very short. And if we keep striving for that, there's an emptiness. And so increasingly, I think that's why we're seeing people really prioritize. I want this to be a journey. I want this to be a joyful journey. And, you know, where I go, we'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, one of my own career advance, uh, advancements was being CEO of a venture-backed publishing company, and I hated the job so much, I was praying my train would derail every day. I, I really did. And I got stomach ulcers. I just hated the people, hated the ho- whole culture. How do you make sure an employee professes to want a particular job really understands what it entails and whether this skill set is a fit and if they will like it? What kinds of questions should you ask? Oh my gosh. And we've all been there. I remember being on an airplane going to do something I really didn't want to do and thinking, you know, how badly would I have to get hurt to get off of out of yeah. this assignment? <laughs> a terrible way to, to live life. Um, you know, it's interesting, Mark, because when I talk to uh, employees who are saying, you know, I want to go to that next level. I want to be a manager. I want to be a leader. I'll ask them, you know, what is it you're looking forward to in that role? And it's like deer in the headlights so frequently. They don't know. It's a reflexive, culturally driven, that's what we do. We move up the ladder. And so a lot of folks are looking at making that move without understanding the, um, the realities of the situation. 
And so increasingly, you know, uh, when you have folks who are interested, for instance, in management, giving them an opportunity to taste the experience in small ways, maybe it's doing some onboarding stuff or coaching new employees or something that gives them a taste of that. Um, sometimes the experience can be a lot more um, powerful than the, even the conversation. But this is where, again, we go back to that conversation uh, and the authenticity and the vulnerability. Like you being willing to share, I was hoping the train would derail. I mean, that's how unhappy I was. And here's why. And if you're not ready for these conditions that led to that, then maybe this isn't the role for you. You know, that kind of transparency is, is gold to young people. I got out of that in six months. I mean, I got it to profitability. And then I uh, found somebody else to take my place. And I, the happiest day was when I handed him the keys. Yeah. Uh, here's the last question. Uh, what advice do you think we should give kids today who are thinking about what they want to do as adults? Because when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in a household where you were, I'm Jewish, and the culture was doctor, if you're smart, lawyer, if you're not so smart, business person, if you're really just not that smart. But you got to pick one of the three. Like, there was no, like, hey, this is what you got to be thinking about. And, I mean, I was fortunate. My dad allowed me to uh, dream about being a sports writer. But rarely in my generation do people get that choice. Now, we're all about choice with our kids. So what's your advice there? So we make sure the kids be happy, but balance all this out. We got to change the conversation right from the time they are little tykes. We got to start, stop asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because that locks us in. It reinforces this notion that you've got to have a title and it's, it's so myopically destination focused. Um, and it sends kids down the wrong path. Not to mention the fact that 85% of the jobs we'll be doing in the year 2030 haven't been invented. So we can't even articulate today what we might want to be seven years from now, much less asking a seven-year-old a question. Change the conversation. What do we, what do you want to do? When we start talking about what kind of work people want to do, with whom, under what circumstances, the difference they want to make, when we start talking about what people want to do, the the being will take care of itself. And within the workplace, you know, once those young people get to the workplace, when they know what they want to do as a leader, there are so many ways you can likely invite those kinds of opportunities into their current role so they can enjoy the employee experience and the growth that they want right where they are. I can't thank you enough for spending time with us, Julie. I really enjoyed the hour and I'm, our people did as well. And I really love the book. And I think even parents should read this book as a way to prepare your kids for life. So I think it's a great book and I hope you have great success with it. And I hope Thank you'll you. write another book so we'll have you back again. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. Such an honor to be with you. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day and a great weekend. And everybody who is listening, the next show is actually Wednesday because I'm traveling to see my girls next weekend. And so we're moving the show up from Friday to Wednesday. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.